So uh, today we look at story, and in a great story, uh, what is required? And that is, first off, a protagonist and an antagonist. And, what you know, like, what's your favorite antagonist of all time? Those, those are the parts that actors love to play, is the, the bad guy. And, you know, I was thinking about, I think, like, Darth Vader, probably Star Wars is one of my favorites. But... Um, you, you need a protagonist, antagonist, uh, supporting characters on either side. Uh, you, generally, they're not alone. Every once in a while, that kind of story works. But you need a plot, some kind of action that incites a conflict and then a resolution. And there you have it. You could be the great, great novel writer just by knowing what I just said. Uh, in our passage, we have this, uh, now coming up in Matthew chapter 2, this very thing. Um, all the makings of a great story. Uh, every part of it. There's even a chase scene yeah, for, uh, for the, some of the fun, funnest parts of good movies. And, uh, and so what we'll see today is that um, we can be a part of this. Uh, that the story that is the life of Christ actually translates into our own lives. Uh, it, obviously, it's not going to be exactly like his, um, obviously. Uh, but uh, the, the types of it, the, in, in general, uh, with antagonists, protagonists, uh, conflict, resolution, uh, plot, uh, supporting characters, uh, many, many incidents that will start uh, real conflict in our lives. And how we deal with that uh, becomes a story. And that is how we're going to look at this passage today. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. And we'll open up with prayer as we always do. Let's be grateful to God for his gift of his son and for the revelation of these things that we have in the Gospels uh, of his childhood um, though this is a story that is often just depicted to children, it has an incredible theological significance. And so with uh, humility and reverence, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel that reveals to us these things that only Matthew records uh, we are privileged to be able to look into them and see how you have given us your son, the things that he went through, even as an infant, and yet you protected him and provided for him and his family. Uh, and But in this also you show us good, evil, light, darkness, choices, uh, what to love, uh, what is beautiful and what isn't. Uh, you reveal these things to us, Father, in a beautiful story, which is the reality and history of our Lord's beginnings. Uh, so we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, our hearts would be greatly enlightened by your truth and this passage. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> 
so in Matthew chapter 2, there's some more things we could have done in chapter 1, but I felt, uh, I, I think the Spirit was leading me to move on. Uh, the, the fact that Joseph uh, does, you know, he wakes up from his dream and he takes Mary as his wife and uh, he shows himself, and we've already dealt with that or, or really seen Joseph as the courageous, righteous man that he was. Uh, in Matthew 2, now, we go from genealogy and the origin of the king in terms of his lineage, uh, being born of a virgin and being of the, in the line of David, being in the dynasty of David. Now we have him in his wherever places. So we go from people to places. There's no places named in chapter 1, and chapter 2 has several of them. Uh, The place in particular is Bethlehem, and then Egypt, and then Nazareth. Uh, The primary purpose of this chapter is not to portray the childhood of the king in terms of, you know, what did he do? There's a gospel, a fake gospel out there that has attempted that. I think that's the gospel of Thomas or of Thomas, which, you know, has all these uh, hijinks of what the young son of God did. Uh, Of course, it's all false. Uh, None of us know. Uh, And none of that is described here. Uh, Jesus' life is not described in childhood. Uh, What he looks like is not described. And so there's nothing in this chapter that describes Jesus himself. Therefore, the leading... Aim. <laughs> uh, the leading aim of Matthew is to indicate the reception given by the Messiah to the world. And so we have now, he is sent, because and Matthew doesn't mention the census for the reason that they go to Bethlehem, that's in Luke. Um, and they go to Bethlehem and there's a reception of him. Uh, or actually, should we say, lack of. And so that's what's depicted here. How is the Messiah going to be received by the world? In chapter 2, there's Jews and Gentiles. So we we are really looking at the whole world. The Jews are shown as anxious, agitated, and actually a little apathetic, not really concerned. The Gentiles worship him. Those are the Magi. And Matthew goes out of his way to depict them as worshipers of uh, Jesus. And, uh, and so it's not an anti-Semitic thing. And it's important to say, especially in this day and age where anti-Semitism is, has spiked, so to speak, it shows us that it's always lingering. Uh, and that this is not anti-Semitic that Jews accepted him and, or didn't accept him and Gentiles did. But it reveals that the ones who should have known him and should have worshipped him did not. It's not that all Gentiles accept him, and all, Jew, all Jews reject him. And so uh, it's those who knew him that did not, or should have known him, I should say, that did not worship him. And, <clears throat> of course, in usual fashion, Matt, Matthew's going to give us multiple allusions to the Old Testament. When it comes to a story, we look for beauty. You know, uh, when you start a story, um, like, for instance, uh, if, if I'm reading along in a book that I like and then in that book another book is recommended, I usually will go check it out. And this happened not too long ago where uh, a novel by 
um, someone was recommended or stated, and I gave it a, you know, I, I went and got it from the library and gave it a shot. And, you know, it's one of those, the opening is slow, and I'm like, do I really want to read this? Like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, it's got to grab me. At, but anyway, I didn't give it much of a chance. I kind of put it down. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> you know, wh- what are you looking for in a story? Is Yeah, like initially you want to be grabbed, but you want to be grabbed by something, you know, that's interesting. And generally for us, what's interesting is beautiful to us. And when it comes to Matthew's story here, there's several ways in which the beauty of things are revealed. Now, there's a lot of ways to look at this, and we are gonna. We could we could look at this passage, chapter two, uh, from an Old Testament perspective. We could look at it in terms of our own personal journey. It could be a, a, a personal exposition. We'll do that too. Um, you know, the Magi are kind of like us. They they have an application to us. They go in search of the King of the Jews, and when they find him, they worship him. And uh, they rejoice. It's, you know, they have this amazing rejoicing. Um, I mean, and, and of course, there's many ways to look at it. We're, we're going to look at it today first and foremost. Is that a beautiful story? The phrase child and his mother is used five times in chapter two. That's a lot. It's a little tiny chapter. It's not like it's 60 verses long. It's short. And a child and his mother, five times. And that's a beautiful picture. Uh, The bright star, mentioned twice. They follow it, and then they follow it again, and it rests over, it stops. It doesn't sound like a star to me. Stars don't do that. Um, And so, uh, you know, we've got that issue. But the star is beautiful. It's light. You know, that's depicted in the Bible as a part of a, as a good thing. We read of exceedingly great rejoicing joy. Now, if that sounds like bad English, it is. But that's how it's depicted. The Magi are exceedingly great rejoicing with joy. And it's... Uh, you know, there's really no English equivalent for how that Greek part is. But <clears throat> we say that they're, you know, over the moon, so to speak, something like that. However, there's no descriptions. The child and his mother. But what does she look like? You know, what is she wearing? Uh, where, where are they? We know that some time has gone by, so they're not still in the cave or, you know, where, the, where Jesus was born. They're not still there. And so where are they? Are they in a house? We would imagine, yeah. But there's absolutely no description of it. Isn't that odd? If you were writing a novel about a situation like this, and you'd work hard at describing things so that your readers could understand so they get a mental picture. Matthew could care less. There's no descriptions. We don't know what Jesus looked like. We don't know what Mary looked like. We don't know the physical appearance of the star. I mean, it's called a star. That's the Greek word for star, but it doesn't behave like a star. There's all kinds of theories about that. Theories. Nobody knows. What about the Magi? 
Who the heck are they? I spent a lot of time the last few days trying to find out who they are. Um, yeah, it's a guess. They're Gentiles. They're from the East. Who are they? What do they look like? What are they wearing? How many are there? There's three, right? No. We have no idea how many. It doesn't say three. There's three gifts. And that song, We Three Kings, um, and I love that song. We're going to keep singing it because I love it. But they're not kings. There's nothing in the scripture that says they're kings. That happened in the 6th century. Somebody took some Old Testament passages and said, hey, they're kings or they were kings. Nobody knows that. And they're not depicted as such. So the beauty of the story is not in the material description. What does Bethlehem look like at this time? We don't know. What house are they in? What's it like? What's their life like? How old is Jesus when the Magi finally show up? What's he doing? What does he like to do? How's the trip to Egypt? Is it easy? Is it hard? How long are they in Egypt? What do they do in Egypt? You know, we really love to know all this stuff. We're at least to be interested. But none of this is given to us. And yet, it is a beautiful story because the beauty in the story is in the moral character and the humble recognition of the people. Those who recognize Jesus, the child for who he is, it's gorgeous. These magi bowing before a child. Now, back in the East, in the Orient, in the first century, it's unheard of. They bow to a child? That's ridiculous. But they do. Because they know him to be the king of the Jews. In contrast to them is Herod. Herod's awful. He's a terrible, he was a terrible man. An evil man. So we see beauty is in the heart of the one who sees the Messiah. And isn't that true for us today? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. And by the way, that word uh, author is a word that could mean prince, prince ruler, which he is clearly shown by Matthew here in this chapter as the king. So, beauty in the story is in the moral character and humble recognition. There's where beauty is. It's in the heart. And now, beauty is, think about it. You know, beauty is all over our world. Beauty is deceiving. Uh, People make a lot of money off of it. I think I think it's well documented that if you're the better looking you are, the the more money you make in comparison to us not so good looking people. Uh, if you're a man, the taller you are, the be- the the better you do. It's just you know people are fed by appearances. Um, beauty and you know, for instance, gift giving. You know, this uh, the Magi giving him gifts has been translated into a multi-billion dollar industry. You know, uh, Amazon Thanksgiving gifts at Christmas is a beautiful thing, right? But the gifts themselves that are given by the Magi uh, each have meaning and they're actually prophesied in the Old Testament in a wonderful way. So, 
The king is the son of man, and he has a purpose, and that purpose will prevail. Even as an infant, it prevails. And why does his purpose prevail? It's because it's God's purpose. If your purpose is God's purpose, you prevail. Now, along the way, there will be suffering. There will be persecution. But you will prevail if you remain in God's will. It's the safest place in the world. Now, the king has offspring. This is very clear in the scripture that the king in Isaiah 53 where the suffering servant has offspring, and we are that offspring. And so, if we follow him, we go with him, right? And so, that's where we'll see this story becomes your story. If we live our lives in the world, under the flesh, in other words, we're not um, adventurously following God's will and putting our life in his hands and risking according to God's word and following commands and doing what we're called to do, despite what the flesh says and the world says and all of that, if I do that, my story, whatever it will be, will be like his. But if I don't, if as a Christian I hide in the world or you know, I really just cover myself with worldly things, I live like a worldling, then I'll have a story, I will, but it won't be anything that anybody wants to read. I mean, think if you're in heaven and the stories that would like to be told and read in heaven. Now think of a really cheap, boring novel that like nobody wants to read. And that would be the story of a Christian who didn't do it, who didn't follow, who didn't obey who didn't put their lives into it. So look at Matthew 2.1. So we have first off, now after. Now the after here is not actually an, an actual word in the Greek. And I would like to say this as we're doing this book. Uh, I am um, reading the Greek and outlining the Greek of this entire book. And, but I'm not going to tell you all the Greek words as we go along, because then it would take us ten times as long. And if they're translated, fine. There's no need to do that. But I did want you to know that if you just say, oh, Pastor Joey just reads the English, uh, I'm not trying to boast of this or anything, but I am doing my job. I'm checking the whole thing in Greek. And uh, where there's things that need to be corrected, I'll show you. But if as I use the New American Standard, if it's translated fine, then I'm not going to waste your time telling you what the Greek is. You're not here to learn Greek. You're here to learn how to be like Christ. So, that said, we have a Greek issue in the first, uh, the first few words. This uh, participle at the beginning uh, is adverbial participle. It can mean when or after. So, and it says, after he was born or when he was born, either one fits. And therefore, the point of that is that we don't know how long it's been. So, after he was born, is he, when the Magi show up, is he one year old, two years old? We have no idea. That said, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judah in the days of Herod the king, now, my New American Standard Bible updated, which is this Bible, took out the behold. 
And I don't know why they did that. But if you've got a New American Standard Bible not updated, then you have a behold there. And it should be there because the Greek word behold is there. I don't, it means probably why they took it out because they didn't think it meant anything. But it kind of does because that whole first part is a setup to behold Magi from the east arrived. All right, so this is about the Magi. They are, and as you can see in the paragraph here, they are the main, the main player is the Magi. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? Right? They, not where is Christ, where this title, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and personal pronoun is used there, it's his star. He didn't say a star, it's his. Now, how they know it's his, is anybody's guess. For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And they do. Now, worship is used twice in this story, and that is one for the Magi and one for Herod. The Magi are going to worship him. Herod wants to kill him. So Herod says he's going to worship him, but he has no, no uh, inclination or intention of doing that. So we've come to worship him. Then Herod the king, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. This word means to be extremely agitated within. But notice, it's not just him. And all Jerusalem with him. Now, not everybody in Jerusalem is like Herod. Herod's an awful man. But yet, we do see, as Matthew shows us, that the Jews are not excited at the idea that a king or the king has been born. They're actually troubled. And so they become the contrast, not just Herod, but Judea. Now, is everybody in Judea like that? No. Because there was, uh, in Luke's gospel, there's two people who were waiting to see the, the, um, the infant Christ come in and uh, to the temple and be circumcised. Uh, two people waiting there for him who did believe upon him. So it's not everybody, but in general, uh, in Judea, they've been troubled and fairly apathetic. And that's in contrast to the Magi who are Gentiles. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And this is Micah 5.2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For, you sh- for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will, be sh- who will shepherd my people Israel. Oh, uh, <clears throat> uh, Matthew uses a very common rhetorical device here. He says, by no means least, and that means that they're not least. Uh, and so uh, the reason being is because this is the city of David, and in the city of David is the prophecy that the ruler would come forth. 
Now, the word for ruler here is not the word for king. It's where we get our word hegemony. Uh, it is hegeomai, and it means a governor or a prince or a ruler. So ruler is fine. And uh, so out of Bethlehem will come uh, by no means least among the governors or the princes of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a prince or a ruler or a governor. But notice what he'll do. He will shepherd now my people Israel, not rule them, but shepherd them. Now, of course, he rules, but shepherd is a kinder, gentler word. In contrast to how Herod runs his kingdom. Herod's a very unpopular guy. He has super high taxes. We know a lot about him, actually, from historians. He was famous. He's called Herod the Great. He was famous for a reason. The people knew him. That's probably why Matthew doesn't have to go into any detail about him, because when this was written, everybody knew who Herod the Great was. And, um, you know, he's, a, he's just an awful, awful person. <clears throat> so then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Now, my New American Standard says exact. There is no word in the Greek for exact. I don't know why they put it there. But it literally says he inquired the time the star appeared. So exact isn't there. Like, can you tell me to the minute when you saw that star? Like, that's not what he's after. He is after when did the star appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go, search carefully. This word means to inquire diligently. Uh, and it's a command. He commands them. He says, go. In a command, it's in the imperative for the child, uh, and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Of course, that's a big fat lie. He wants to kill him. And after hearing the king, <clears throat> they went. That's a third time now. Herod is referred to as king, and that's important. Is Herod truly a king? He's, he has taken upon himself the title king of the Jews. Is he a king? By title he is, but we'll see how he got it. Uh, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. You see that? When they saw the star, we would assume here in the flow of the narrative, it's when the star stopped over. Now, stars don't do this, right? Stars are millions of miles away. Uh, but whatever this was, it stopped over the house, and they saw the child. So when the star stopped, it, Matthew has to use four different words to describe their joy. It's exceedingly great rejoicing joy, basically, if you put all the words together. It's the verb rejoicing, the noun joy, and then two modifiers, exceedingly and great, or greatly. And so, <clears throat> that's how the Greek has it. They are over the moon. They can't be any more excited than they are. And it's amazing here, their, uh, the, the level of their excitement. Uh, 
that they have to see the Messiah, to see the King of the Jews. They don't call him Messiah. Uh, <coughs> so then after coming into the house, they saw a chi- the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. So they saw, they fell, they worshipped him, and then they opened their treasures, and then they presented to him. Uh, Matthew uses five verbs to describe, in this short sentence, five verbs for the Magi on what they do. They see, they fall to the ground, they worship, they open their treasures, and they present to him. Five things they do to the Messiah. That's how much they, they are. <clears throat> and, and in all honesty, according to all Old Testament scripture, this is the proper way to worship. <clears throat> and they opened their treasures. They presented to him the gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. And away they go, and they're gone forever. Now, first, some highlights. Uh, they saw a star in the east. It's an interesting word. Um, the word for east, the Greek word, is antole. Uh, if you've ever seen an old map, uh, Turkey in that part of northern um, uh, Middle East is called Antolia, and that's where it comes from. <coughs> Excuse me. Antole means uh, originally rising of the stars. It was a word for morning. Uh, like the morning, because the sun rose in the east and it became to mean the east. Um, that's all we know about these guys, these magi. How many? We don't know how many there were. We just know that they're Gentiles from the east. Somehow they know that the king of the Jews has been born. We don't know how they know that. Uh, Herod is referred to, I have twice in my notes, but it's three times, because one time the magi referred to him as king. And... That's significant because Jesus is king of the Jews, stated by the Magi, not by Israel, not by Judea, but by the Magi, say that he's king of the Jews. And that's, so therefore, we have this protagonist-antagonist in this story, which is the king of the Jews who is a child and the king of the Jews. That's how he refers to himself, Herod does, as king of the Jews, and is he truly a king? Uh, in Malachi's prophecy, Jesus is a ruler or a governor, uh, but when he rules, he will poimeno, the Greek word means to shepherd. It's the word for pastor, by the way. So he's going to shepherd his people, and that means to gently lead and guide and protect. And that is in contrast to Herod, who, and like, you know, Herod is a depiction of all earthly rulers who are drunk with power and wealth and influence. And you know, that's all they want. Herod is willing to kill children to keep his position. Which is interesting because something just happened in our world recently where children were killed. And for what? So people could keep their positions. Uh, and so... Uh, the fact that Herod is a king, he takes this title. We do know the history of how he gets this title. He's called Herod the Great because of his victories in war. And he gets this title because he's politically a genius. Sort. I don't know if we want to call him genius. I don't like him, obviously. 
but uh, I wouldn't call him a genius at anything, but he's very good at political intrigue. And the reason why he's king of Judea is because of political intrigue. There's a whole thing with Mark Antony and Cleopatra and a war that went on, and, so, and he was able to play Roman politics really well. And he got himself promoted because he's wily, changed side. He's a perfect politician. That's why he's king. He connived it. And now, when, you know, as Matthew refers to him, Luke doesn't do this, but Matthew does. And the whole world knows that this king, Herod, the one, the people that Matthew are writing to, uh, is truly a conniving, false, pretender king. Now, as I said, Matthew goes out of his way to show that the Magi are perfect worshipers of God, and though they be Gentiles. This story is dense. It's compact. You get the whole story in 31 verses. And it's short, especially in comparison to Luke's account. Luke uses 148 verses to tell the birth narrative. Matthew uses 31. 48 if you count the genealogy. But Luke uses uh, almost four times as much, roughly almost four times as much, ink and paper to tell the birth narrative, uh, whereas Matthew uses a real short, it's real condensed. <clears throat> the separation here is clear between Matthew 1 and 2, but we must remember that they are connected. The story of the, the, well, the genealogy that proves his birth and also this which proves his kingship and the fact that what Matthew wants to reveal to his writers and reveal to us is why this one ends up in Nazareth. Um, and, and that's going to play an important part in the life of Christ. And an important part to us too. Uh, it's the, the part of this depiction of our Lord is going to take away from us any desire to gain approbation from worldliness or gain approbation from people in a false way. Because God really goes out of his way to make his son, his Messiah, be someone who is meek and mild. He's not going to Rome. He doesn't grow up in Jerusalem. He doesn't even grow up in Judea, which is the place for them. Uh, he grows up in a nowhere place. Now, Matthew calls Nazareth a polis. A polis, now, that's the Greek word for city. And we know it wasn't. You know, that's like, you know, a place, there's, uh, you know, I don't know, it makes me think of like Otis or something when you're driving to the coast, right? If you're, it takes you like three seconds to drive through it. It's like a, a place in our world where there's like a gas station and a convenience store and maybe, I don't know, something else, maybe a church. And uh, that's a city, you know, but it's not. Nazareth was no city. Um so anyway, and that's, I think Matthew is just there giving it a, a good name because it's the place that Jesus grew up or the Messiah grew up. So in Matthew 2 here, we have the tension, uh, this is great tension between beauty, uh, the bright star, the splendidness of the star, 
uh, the open sky, the great joy of the Magi. And on the other hand, there's Herod, and who we know from history that Herod was extravagant, uh, that his palace was extravagant, that he lived extravagantly, uh, that he had diseases, he likely had gout. A lot of people who lived extravagantly back then had gout, which I can identify with. Thank God mine came from medication, not from extravagance, kind of. It was probably a mixture of both. But I haven't had it in years, thank God. But, you know, it's horrible to deal with. There's a lot of that in the ancient world as people were eating all this rich food and they're getting no exercise. Like this guy lives uh, in, a, in an evil, excessive consumption kind of way. And people know this about him. He's going to die in this story real soon. And, you know, the contrast is between him and the Lord. This is set up right at the beginning. And it's set up for us. You know, like, where do you want to put your energy? Where do you want to put your, your, your talents? Where do you want to put your money? Where do you want to put your, your time? In the worldly things, that's like a Herod, even though we're not as rich as him. But we can be. They're completely involved in things that are of no value here. The things that are beautiful here are the ones who see and worship the Messiah. And we can do that every day. There's a tension between real beauty and adornment. And... A child of which we have no idea what he even looks like. There's real power in an infant who is the king, the true king. There's real power in him because he's protected by God. He's not old enough or strong enough to do anything for himself. Well, at least we don't read of it. And yet he is protected, provided for. There is truth here and there are lies. There is light and there is darkness. There is goodness and there is evil. There is a tension that builds as we, you know, I think even still feel it, I think, as even though you know the story that as Herod secretly plans to kill this child, there's, we, we can't warn him, you know, there's, it's, we're at the mercy of the story. What about the children? So as Herod plans to kill the child, he, and he, once he realizes he was fooled by the Magi, which is interesting, an interesting part to this, because Herod lies to them, and then they end up not doing what he told them, and then he gets really mad at it, um, and which is true of all people who live in sinful lives, that they're... Um, you know, they, they see in others what they themselves do. They project and then they get mad at people for the very things that they do. So there's a tension that builds. We can't stop it, right? The only one who can save this child is God himself. There are many ways to look at this passage. And as I said, we're going to look at it first and foremost as the drama that it is. There's three acts. Uh, there's scenes to each one, two. Three acts, six scenes. Uh, and the first act is the announcement to Joseph in chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Act 2 is all about the Magi in chapter 2, 1 through 12. 
this is the scene between the Magi and Herod, and then there's the scene of the Magi in Bethlehem. And this moves, right? It's in just a matter of a few sentences. You, you've got uh, not a lot of detail thrown in here. If someone wrote a play and decided, you know, we're going to write a play and send it to stage, and there's going to be three acts, and people say, well, three acts, that's pretty good. And uh, if, you know, if we just followed Matthew's script, it would be over in five minutes. It's really condensed. Uh, and then in Act 3, there's the flight to Egypt, the slaughter of the uh, children in Bethlehem, and then the return. And in the return, that's where we find that this, the Lord is going to be in Nazareth. So the drama is lively. It's agitated. It moves incredibly fast. We have an embarrassed and troubled Joseph, and then we have Joseph and his family in Nazareth in a matter of 30 verses. What am I going to do with this pregnant uh, fiancé uh, who I have not been with? And then in 30 verses, we're living in Nazareth for presumably the next 20 years in peace and quiet. So the effect of Matthew's account on purpose is intensity. It's dramatically intense and it's theologically dense. So when we look at the theology of this passage, we'll look at a few Old Testament passages tonight, but um, when we see it all together, we'll see that there's multiple doctrines that are here. And I think it's usually just kind of skimmed over because it's something, it's a story that everybody tells at Christmas. It's kind of a children's story. And since it's treated like that, people don't really, I think in the most part, at least I haven't in the past either, dive into it to get the doctrines out of it. Uh, all right. So, moving on. <coughs> now, the star is described as rising, leading, and then stopping over a particular place. There's only one other thing in the Bible that does anything like this, and that's the, the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in the Old Testament. In Numbers 9.17, it says, And in the place where the cloud settled down, there the sons of Israel would camp. And when this cloud picked up and moved, they'd pack up the tabernacle and off they'd go in a very strict formation that was delineated in the law. But, uh, you know, that's, and this looks very much like what this star does. So, um, again, I'm not saying that it is. I, you know me, if something's conjectural, I don't even touch it. I don't even like going there. Uh, I don't know what this star is. But it, it uses the Greek word star. But it stops. It stops over a place, and that's the place where Jesus is. Now, as I said, Matthew uses five verbs to describe the behavior of the Magi. They see, first off, they see the son, the child and the mother. They kneel down. The Greek verb also can mean fall down. They kneel down. They adore him or they pay homage to him or to worship him. They open their treasures and then they offer their gifts. They present their gifts. It's five things they do. Now, Matthew, could have, Matthew is being brief here, like I've been saying over and over. He's being real quick about this, but yet he slows down when it comes to the Magi and their worship of, 
uh, of uh, Jesus. So uh, using five verbs is really slows it down. It really emphasizes it, uh, that they're going to worship. And they are portrayed as model worshipers in two places in the law, in Exodus 23.15 and Deuteronomy 16.16. Moses writes, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. And both of these, these are uh, in reference to the the Passover, and uh, the first fruits is right after Passover, and you were to bring the offering to God, and He says, "None of you shall appear before Me empty-handed." Um, and now, think of the app. There's an application of that to us today, as we give to our church, as we give to God, whatever it be. It doesn't have to be money, but it's it's us. We give him our lives. Present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice before the Lord in Romans chapter 12. <laughs> uh, so let's go to, uh, there's three gifts given. Let's look at those. Look at Isaiah. Go to Isaiah 60. Now I can't remember. No, I didn't. I don't think I mentioned, but a lot of uh, expositors draw parallels between the Magi and the Queen of Sheba. Uh, you know, it's it's say that uh, you know it, it's roughly of the same kind of thing that she comes to Israel to see, you know, the king to see Solomon, who is the king. So look at Isaiah 60, verse 6. A multitude of camels will cover you. Now, uh, you should know the context. Like in my Bible, there's a heading there at the top of this chapter. But it is, this is uh, God speaking to Zion. Uh, This is after um, the servant, the suffering servant has suffered. And this is his offspring. And the offspring in Isaiah for Israel is at the second coming. Uh, for, for us, we're the offspring now. Um, but of course, we're not Israel. We're two different things. The church and Israel are different. But uh, notice this in verse 6. The multitude, a multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. Midian is out east. And those from Sheba will come and they will bring gold and frankincense and will bear good news of the praises of the Lord. And this looks incredibly like this. Uh, and we say, well, well, hold on. You know, could this be or is this a prophecy fulfilled by the Magi? But as we've seen with, and we'll continue to see, where there's some of these prophecies that are given by Matthew and other prophecies in the New Testament have a historical basis. And so when something happens in history, like one coming up we'll see this week, is uh, out of Egypt I called my son. And so when, when Herod is going to kill the children, the angel comes again to Joseph as another dream and says, take, take your family to Egypt. And then when Herod's dead, they come out of Egypt. And Matthew applies a passage from Hosea as a prophecy about that, that out of Egypt I call my son. And it's a historical fact of you know, Israel being released from Egypt in Exodus chapter 12. And so we have here uh, the actual, 
the giving of those who come to Israel. They come to the servant, to the Messiah, to the king, and they give him, and this is going to happen in the future, they give him gold and frankincense. Go to Psalm 72. Psalm 72, verse 8. Psalm 72, 8, this is uh, at the front. You can read the header there, again, if you have those. In Psalm 78, this is about the king. You just you can read verse 1. Uh, this is a psalm written by Solomon about the king. And so is this about Solomon the king, or is it about the true king? And as you read on, you find out, well, you know, it's got kind of a double meaning. Uh, In verse 8, may he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And I read this as I was putting this into my notes as this uh, protest against Israel and this phrase is being shouted out by all these idiots who know no history uh, from the river to the sea. They keep saying this. And sure enough, here you have it right here in Psalm 72, verse 8. There is going to be someone who rules from sea to sea. And it ain't going to be the Palestinians. Uh, it's going to be the Lord Jesus Christ. So just a plug for Israel there. Uh, Psalm 72, verse 8. That's at his second coming, by the way. So it's not going to happen in our age. May he rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts and let all kings bow down before him. All nations serve him. So you see that 72.11, all kings bow down before him. Somebody in the 6th, I think it was in the 6th century, said, well, there it is. There's the Magi. So there are three kings. That's how they, they they got promoted much later on, centuries after, by by uh, picking the wrong passage for them. But anyway, uh, what this reveals is the fact that the kings will come down and bow before him. And this is fulfilled here by the Magi. But notice, I want to continue here, because they present gifts, and now gold is going to come up. Look at verse 12. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help, the afflicted also, and him who has no helper He will have compassion on the poor and the needy. The lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence. And their blood will be precious in his sight. So may he live. And may the gold of Sheba be given to him. So here's again a gift of gold. And let them pray for him continually. That's really like worship. And let them them bless him all day long. So this passage it also looks much like the magi so what we have in the story first off is when you read this you see things like what is he going to do this king has in verse uh, uh, 12 he'll deliver the needy verse 13 he'll have compassion on the poor and the needy Uh, verse 14 he's going to rescue their life from oppression and violence In contrast to him is Herod. And that's what Herod does. He oppresses. He takes from the needy. In fact, in his bid to keep his throne, he's so paranoid by a child, the possibility of a child king being born 
Bethlehem's only five miles, by the way, from from Jerusalem, that uh, he's willing to kill children. We don't know how many, but he gives the order, kill all the children two years and under, the male children. And uh, sure enough, and we'll see, you know, who, who set out to kill Jewish male children? You ever heard of that in the scripture? It has happened before. It's amazing that it happened just recently. I don't know what that means. It's just amazing to me. But Pharaoh, right in the right in the beginning of Exodus, the Jews were growing in number and growing in number, and Pharaoh made the edict kill all the male children. And we have it again. Actually, it turns out that Herod killed two of his own sons. He drowned them. Nice guy. He killed three of his wives. He had ten of them. He killed three of them. He's a murderer. He killed his own sons. He doesn't care. The contrast is made here between the Lord and... So, the story of good and evil, light and darkness, protagonist, antagonist, a um, conflict, a very severe conflict that occurs... You know, why does it occur? Some incident happens. What if the Magi never showed up? The Mag- what starts this whole thing is the Magi go to the palace and say, hey, where's the king of the Jews? He's been born. If they don't show up, this doesn't happen. But something sparks it. And this is what happens in our lives all the time. God is going to allow the spark to start the fire. And then he's going to say to you, now, you can play a role in this story. You can be faithful. You can follow me. You can do my will. And if you do, the story is going to be magnificent. We're still reading this story, and hopefully we're being excited by it, you know, thousands of years later, after we already know it. And... So, when it comes to our lives, when God ignites that spark, allows it to be ignited, and the fire happens in our own lives, well, we can either follow his will or we could go do something else. We could try to put out the fire ourselves through some earthly or fleshly way. We could resort to some kind of you know, stimulant to try and make us feel better. We could uh, sublimate with something to try and distract ourselves to make us feel better. Or we can follow God's will despite the storm, despite the conflict, and wait for his deliverance. In just a few lines, we see Jesus go to Egypt, back to Bethlehem, and then to Nazareth. But in reality, that took years. The travails. You know, Joseph had to leave, Joseph and Mary had to leave their homes to go to a, a place that they did not know where they were strangers. They're going to be Jews in Egypt. Now, there were, still, there were Jews in Egypt at the time, but we, we don't know anything about their lives, but we can know that there were trials there. So if we follow, then our lives, 
become an incredible story like this. Is there going to be an antagonist in your life? you got Satan as your antagonist your whole life, so you're set there. Are you going to be a protagonist? Or, you know, is our story, your story, my story, going to be one where, you know, I, I just get beaten all the time? If you cover your life with the flesh and the world and do not love and obey your king, you will experience none of this great story. You will have a predictable... I think I always heard about the dime store novel. I, you know, there was, a, there was a, a dime store in my neighborhood when I grew up. Um, and then the candy bars went up to 25 cents, but they didn't change the name. <laughs> But, uh, you know, I, there, I'm sure there's no dime stores anymore. But that phrase, dime store novel, is, is, the, is the phrase that depicts a boring, anybody can buy it. It's a boring book that no one wants to read. And if, if we hide our lives, our Christian lives, under the flesh in the world and don't obey and love our king on a day-by-day day basis, our stories are going to be just that. What we have here is something exciting, relevant, life-changing. And the same is what God wants for you and for me. So I close with this um, Paul's words in Philippians 3:13 through 14. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That upward call, that's God's story that he wrote for you. And uh, any of us can pursue it. We need to love him, obey him, and maintain the faith. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for all things that come through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for these words in Matthew that inspire us in a story of our own lives. We thank you for the story of our Lord's life that we can look to again and again, be reminded of the magnificence that you have done in his life in this world and to the world to come. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.